0: This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript the Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS in-depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip.io. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test passed? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied into a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeShip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fuss-free, continuous delivery, check them out at CodeShip.io. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Watch Me Code. Have you been looking for regular, high-quality video screencasts on building JavaScript done by someone who really understands JavaScript? Derek Bailey's videos cover many of the topics we talk about on JavaScript Jabber and are up on the latest tools and tricks you need to write great JavaScript. He also covers language fundamentals, so there's plenty for everybody. Looking over the catalog, I got really excited, and I can't wait to watch them all. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash watchmecode. This episode is sponsored by Component 1, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to Widgmo.com and check them out.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 123 of JavaScript Jabber, which is Tracer with Eric Arvidson. My name is Joe Eames. I'm your host. And today on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you briefly from Orem, Utah. And our special guest today, as I mentioned, is Eric Arvidson. We're going to be talking about Tracer. Hello, everyone. So, Eric, would you like to take a minute and introduce yourself?
2: Sure. So, my name is Eric Arvidson. I work at Google, especially on the Chrome team, doing JavaScript related stuff. I'm a member of TC39, which is uh, ECMA technical committee number 39, which is responsible for the next version of JavaScript standard. On the Chrome team, I work on web related stuff, like standard stuff, some Polymer stuff. Uh, sorry, I saw you had a JS Jabber a couple weeks ago about Polymer, uh, which was pretty exciting i do some V8 stuff once in a while, too. Are those yeah. two teams awesome. pretty separate from each other? So the V8 team and the, the other Chrome teams? Yeah, so it's it's by design. The V8 team is independent, and we have a strict API boundary between Chrome and V8.
3: Cool.
2: I never knew that. An interesting fact. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, yeah, so but V8's main customer is, is clearly Chrome, and when V8 changes the API... There's always someone willing to to update Chrome. And sometimes other users like Node.js gets a short stick there because no one keeps them in the loop. (laughs) I'm sure they're okay. That's probably why their version of the game is so old. So Tracer is my 20% project, uh, which means that it's something I do on my spare time. 20% means that I can take 20% of my time at work to work on something that's fun and hopefully related to my main work.
1: So is it really only 20% of your time, or doesn't it being more?
2: Uh, yeah, it tends to be more because it's so much fun. So I, I tend to, I, on, my, on my work hours, I try to at least do code reviews. I tend to not do any large coding work at the office. I try to do that at home.
3: So can you explain what Tracer is, just for people who maybe haven't heard of it? Yep, so let, let's do the background
2: of Tracer so Preserve is a compiler that compiles JavaScript next version to a JavaScript current version. And right now we're mostly focusing on ES6, ECMAScript edition 6, which is more or less done. The spec is more or less done. And so there's a bunch of features in ES6 that ES5 does not support, of course. So we, we take the ES6 code and compile it to ES5. So you run in all your modern browsers. Uh, right now it does not support ES3, so you need IE9 or above, I believe. Maybe even IE10. And, um, yeah, so Tracer started in 2011 as a more of a proof of concept or a tool to help us design new standards. Uh, it was done by a guy called Peter Hallam, and it was introduced at JSConf 2011. Uh, him and Alex Russell was presenting it back then, so it started off as a research project more or less, where the goal was not really usability or efficiency. But over time, we try to transform it or like make it more useful for real code, so you can actually use it.
3: So I know that a lot of the web platform comes from people implementing things, and then it gets standardized. At all. Was traits ever prescriptive for ES6, or is it only descriptive? Did you only implement things that were in the spec or did you try out things and eventually
2: made it into the spec? So yeah, both I would say. Early on we we prototyped class syntax, a lot of different class syntaxes. We show them to the committee, the standards committee, and gave feedback on on the different proposals. And then there are things like destructuring which we just basically implemented what was in the spec and what was in Firefox early on. And another important feature that we implemented early on was async functions, which is uh, allows you to untangle your callback chains using promises and a dedicated syntax so your code looks very imperative, like line by line. And this was based on C Sharp's async functions, uh, which now, well, let me back up a little bit. So async functions is something that we are going to add in ES7. For ES6, we could not convince the committee that async functions were important enough, but we did get generators in there, and generators have more or less the same structure as an async function, and it's pretty easy to convert one to the other.
1: That's really interesting that it was uh, based off of C Sharp. Are there other languages that implement the same feature that you could have based it off of, and why C Sharp's async functions?
2: I'm sure there are other languages that do it similarly. Uh, one of the reason the guy who started Tracer, Peter Hallam, came from C-Sharp at Microsoft. He he wrote big parts of that compiler. So it became natural for him to do the work and propose that in the committee.
1: Huh, awesome. Was that based on generators, or did what generators allow you to do, was that based on async functions, or were they kind of in parallel and just sort of happened to overlap in functionality? So the way that we envisioned it a
2: couple years ago was that we would have async functions in the spec, The committee thought that it was a step too far, too much magic. So instead, there were a lot of people pushing for generators with a library on top of it. The champion of generators is Dave Herman at Mozilla. He has a library called Task.js, which allows you to take a generative function with yields, yield expressions in it and, and wrap it in this Task.js library and then it behaves more or less like an async function. So with ES6, we got generators and promises. So once those were in the spec and everyone were happy with them and everyone understood them, it was a baby step to get async functions approved for ES7.
1: So, But people on the committee didn't thought the async functions were too ambitious. So is there anybody on the committee you want to call out and call them an idiot over the air? I'm not going to do
3: that.
2: (laughs) <laughs> I, I think it was the right approach. It would have been, it would have been a lot of extra work for ES6. And ES6 is already a, a huge spec, and it, it's good to cut things down sometimes. Too bad because I really like async functions. I think async functions are much more important than generators. But once we had generators and, and promises in there, it was, was a piece of cake to get the rest approved.
1: Now you said that the ES6 spec is more or less fixed. What what does that mean, more or less? So ES6
2: is a feature freeze, a feature freeze, so it's just bug fixes at this point. Initially, we were supposed to have it stamped and approved by the end of this year, uh, which means that ECMA would say it's done. We decided that we needed another six months to fix more bugs, but this means, it doesn't mean that we're adding any new features. So all the features you see in the draft today they will be in the spec.
1: So when when is it going to be totally finalized? Uh, middle
2: next year, June next year.
0: So I've got a question about Promises. Did it get standardized as Promises A+, plus or not? Yes. If I understand
2: the details correctly, it's a superset. And Promises Dominic Danicola was a champion of that, and he designed and worked heavily with...
3: What a surprise. Dominic championing
2: Promises. Yep. Dominic <laughs> Danicola, oh, yeah. I guess you know him. Yeah, so he did, he did a tremendous job working on Promises and finally getting that into the, into the spec.
1: So my big question is, why the heck did Object.Observe not make it into ES6?
2: I'm not really sure. I, I feel like it was, just, it, it was brought up a bit too late in the process. And mm. at the same time, we are kind of redesigning the whole process. So once ES6 is done, we're going to try to do a yearly spec release or at least maybe every 18 months or so. And at that point, it won't be driven by features. It'll be driven by how complete the features are. So object that observe is complete from a spec standpoint. So once ES7 train comes, it will be included there.
1: So I want to bring this back to Tracer, but I think that a little bit of groundwork about ES6 and ES7 is germane to this discussion and I had understood that when it comes to ES7, it's no longer going to be like waiting for like twenty features, wrapping them all up and calling me ES7, right? Correct. It will be more update driven. So once December
2: 2015 comes, we'll look at features and see which ones are done and then we'll just include those.
1: So how will that affect Tracer?
2: I don't think it will I mean it does it does fit the, the feature requests list pretty pretty much. So it's easier to know what to implement and what to enable by default. I see Tracer being even more important in the future because browsers are finally starting to ship ES6 and ES7 features, and people still want to support some older browsers. So with ES7 and ES6, it will be more important. I don't really think that ES7 is going to change the way that Tracer is going to go from here.
1: one of the things I think is interesting about Tracer is the fact that it doesn't implement everything that's part of what's ES6. Are, is there more ES6 features that Tracer is going to be implementing, or is it done with what it's going to implement of ES6? Um, right now, there are some
2: features in ES6 that are just not... They will be, they will be just too inefficient to emulate. Like, full support for symbols uh, requires... Like, you intercept every single object lookup, like square-backed lookup in a, in a mem- object, uh, which it gets really complicated and expensive. Same thing with proxies. If you want to fully emulate proxies, you have to basically rewrite everything, single property lookup, every single function call, which is just not something that I'm willing, or I don't think anyone would be willing to actually put in production.
3: So I wanted to ask about that, related to stuff in production. We had Eric Rinn on a while ago, and he talked about... You mentioned Tracer a little bit and he said that man, I'm probably gonna misquote but I feel like he said there were people using it in production, even though it compiled down because it was trying to get syntax and semantics exactly right, it would sometimes compile down to relatively inefficient code. Whereas if you're if you were less strict about getting it to match the spec one hundred percent or missing some edge cases. You might be able to optimize it a little bit more. Is that a case Does Tracer explicitly choose correctness over Maybe speed or production readiness or something?
2: Initially, it was all about correctness. And right now, it still tries to be correct, it's, it's and it's still important to be correct. But we all have done optimizations, which allow us to still be correct, but faster. Sure. But there's definitely some
3: ideas to, to do a subset and make that faster. Do you think that... Well, first of all, do you know if people are using this in production? And if so, do you think that's a good idea? I know people are using it in production, and I think it's a good idea. You
2: just need to be aware of which features you're using. Um, so Tracer has a bunch of options. Some of these are experimental. Experimental means that they're either non-standard or they're just too inefficient to implement. And so as long as you don't use the experimental flag, then you're good for production.
1: Didn't um, let used to be experimental, and now it's not? So let is still experimental,
2: and the main reason why is that it's implemented as a try-catch block, because that's the only way in ES5 to get the correct LED scoping. Last week, or actually last weekend, we landed a pull request that changes uh, LED to use functions like if's or just ordinary variables. There are some follow-up bugs on that one, but once those are done, we're planning to enable it by
1: default. Sweet. Very cool. What other features of Tracer are implemented particularly inefficiently or are extremely difficult to implement but are implemented and people might want to watch out for? Yeah, I think it's just symbols. Symbols
3: are slow, like I said. All right. Um, I got to confess. I feel like I do this every podcast, but there's, I don't know what symbols are in ES6. Okay. I admit my stupidity. Yeah, so I'll uh, try to explain <laughs> what they're used for. So in ES5,
2: every property is a string. So when you do a.b, the property name is a string b, actually. Mm -hmm. And you can use a square bracket and a string expression b, Mm -hmm. and it will do the same thing. In ES6, we have something called symbols, which is a different kind of property key. And the main benefit of that one is that it's a unique symbol. So there will never be a collision. So if you create one symbol, the only way that you can get... So let's say you have an object that you, instead of using a string b to assign a property to the object, use a symbol that you created. So with symbols, you can create properties on an object that are guaranteed to be unique, that there's no way that there will be a conflict between two of the symbols. And the only way to get the symbol back out is to have access to the symbol itself. So this allows you to have unique symbols. Like in ES5, people sometimes use a random string to make some kind of uniqueness, but it's not really guaranteed to be unique. Someone can easily just look it up and use it, or accidentally get to it by doing a a foreign loop or something like that.
3: So the symbols are the the keys of the object?
2: Yes, so symbols are a new kind of property key. Okay.
3: Is it kind of similar to symbols in Ruby? I believe so.
2: I haven't done much Ruby, but I know it's, it's influenced by genSims in other languages.
0: So does this mean that we'll be able to do, like, private stuff inside of a prototypical instance?
2: Well, there was a long discussion about how we wanted to implement symbols, and right now they're not, not private. They are not visible in the Fourier loop, so it's hard to accidentally get it. You can deliberately get it by using reflection, and you can also get to them by using a proxy. And in in the ES6 design days, we were talking about having private symbols and public symbols. But for ES6, we decided just to do public symbols. And for ES7, we'll revisit it again.
1: Very cool. So are symbols your favorite feature then?
2: Uh, No, I think classes (laughs) are my favorite feature. Sorry, what was that? Classes are my favorite feature. Really? I know a lot of people hate on them, uh, but I find them very useful. And I think a lot of the hate comes from misunderstanding what what classes in in JavaScript actually is. So a lot of people, almost everyone here, uses prototype inheritance in JavaScript. And it's just a lot of boilerplate code to get it right. And even if you think you're getting it right, you might not actually be getting it right. Or you might be using YUI or Dojo or some other JavaScript library, and they don't happen to really agree on what, what certain things you do especially when it comes to calling super. So in ES6, we're adding dedicated syntax that sets up the prototype chain in the same way that a correct library would do it in ES5. We're just gonna give you a syntax so it's clear what's going on. It's easy to read, easy to write. As a bonus, we're gonna give you a real super implementation. So you can easily just write super and that will call the super method or the super constructor. Yeah, so in ES5, you can do all these things, it's just gets pretty ugly. And I like syntax that describes your intention. I think that it's important to say what you mean, and code should definitely say what you mean.
3: I feel like a lot of the objections to the class stuff in JavaScript is just tech hipsterism. People are just saying that it looks a little bit more like Java now. Yeah, that's fair. But on
2: the other hand, JavaScript does come from a C-like syntax. Uh, we already have keywords for Class and extends and static. Uh, so it just makes a lot of sense to reuse those keywords. Uh, you have less risk of conflicts, for example. So when it came to static methods in ES6, no one really wanted to use a static keyword because they're not really static. They're, they're instance properties on the actual function that you're using for your constructor. But since we have the keyword there and no one could come up with a better it's keyword, a it was article. just logical like it was a reluctant decision. Yeah, but it was, I mean, when you see static, you know what what it's going to mean. People sure. will know what it means, even though it's not exactly what they might expect from other languages. Right. I can name a couple other features that I also like. I really like uh, spread and rest. So today, a lot of people use, like, function, the prototype apply and pass in, like, uh, arguments or, or an array of some kind. Uh, and spreading just allows you to to spread that array into all the arguments. And the same thing works for array literals. Uh, so it just, there's really and no hardly any reason to ever use apply anymore, for example. And same thing with, with the rest arguments. There's hardly any reason to use arguments anymore. You can just name your rest arguments and use that as a plain array. It's small things, but I think it's just, it fits very well with the language. And it's just, it's something that's very convenient.
1: My favorite, I think, is uh, the arrow functions.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that one, too. It's just I've been using this stuff for a long time. So Tracer itself is written in ES6. Uh, so I've been writing ES6 code for a couple of years, actually. And once in a while, I have to write code that's not written in ES6, and it, and I forgot that I cannot use like method shorthands and arrow functions. Like, it's just very convenient.
3: So I want to ask a kind of related question about offering... Libraries in ES6. So I know there's, I think the fix thing that Facebook distributes is in ES6, and it's not really, it makes it difficult to consume unless you're also using ES6 and something like Tracer. Do you know, if someone, want to be your thoughts on that, on how you, how you feel about how people using ES6 can interact with other people who are still using ES5? So
2: a lot of people today. They use build steps, and when you have a build step, it's it's fine. I don't think it's an issue. I think the way that this is going to play out is that people are going to use the the module loaders to load ES6 code from ES5 because module loaders is an API that works in ES, even in ES3. You can do feature detection for that. I'm not sure that answers your question. No, I kind
3: of. Does. So if someone kind of loads the libraries ES6 in the still consume that using a module loader to transpile that down to ES5. If you're using ES5, is that how it works?
2: Yep, so there there are two options here. One is to use a, a module loader that does the compiling on the fly. Guy Bedford has a module loader called ES6 module loader, which does this. He uses Tracer for the parsing and transformations, but he implemented the module loader from this ES6 spec, and this all works in ES5.
3: And the other alternative
2: is to compile ES6 modules Ahead of time to maybe like common JS modules or AMD modules, which, uh, yeah, some people do that, and that's easy to,
3: to consume if you're in Node.js at least. For sure. It's just a little bit more, I mean, if, if the author only publishes something in ds it's a pain to grab it and have to compile it yourself and then a copy or, I don't know, how you say So I like yeah. the module loader. Yeah, we're happy to fly. Yeah, I agree. I think the short
2: term solution is probably for people that do push ES6 packages, ES6 modules to NPM, is that they either pre compile it or that NPM maybe does the compiling for them. There will be some transition period here. Yeah, it will be a little bit extra burden for people that want to use the new stuff. Very cool.
1: So I have another question. Um, I know that Tracer, when you use it, you actually have a runtime library you need to include in your production application, right? Yes. So what does that runtime library actually do? So,
2: conceptually, you could remove it. So for example, when you create a class, we have to set up the prototypes and set up a few other things, which is not that much code, but if you have 100 classes in your system and you have to duplicate all that code, that's a lot of code that you don't want to duplicate. So we decided to put that in the runtime library. At one point, we actually did not have a runtime library for everything, but we injected the code once it was just hard for people to maintain. They get stuff that they might not want. Well, not that they don't want, but they. It was harder for them to maintain different compilation units because you tend to compile one file at a time, and then it wasn't clear which which runtime functions you needed. So another way, another way to see to look at it is that these runtime functions are just helpers to reduce code size. You can always inline all of these if you want, but you don't want to. It's it's just like a in, in V8 or in Spider Monkey, there's, there's stuff in there that's not a runtime. T- run you don't want to inline all of that code.
1: Gotcha. So, what do you think of the other projects that are very similar in purpose and scope to Chaser, like the ESNext project?
2: I think they're all great. I'm not that familiar with ESNext, actually, to be honest. I was going to mention uh, Regenerate by Facebook, which only compiles generated functions to functions which is a really neat product. I think they, their output is much better than Tracer's output, but on the other hand, they only support generated functions, and they do have experimental support for async functions. And then another big shout-out is, of course, to TypeScript, which kind of, is, it's a compiler, but I wouldn't call it ES6 compliant, but at least they're experimenting with a lot of ES6 syntax. Their goal is more on production quality, so they take shortcuts when it comes to class behavior But in most code, their shortcuts are fine. You're only going to hit the edge cases if you do something weird.
1: Right. Now, Tracer doesn't support a lot of features that are more natural to be implemented as polyfills, right? Uh, So we do have a
2: bunch of polyfills. They are not as complete as the ES6 polyfill project. I remember the exact name right now
1: Uh, ES6 shim. Is that That, the one I'm thinking of? So
2: we do we do a polyfill promise map set a bunch of array methods a bunch of string methods and stuff like that, and these these things are pretty easy to implement. It's just a matter of someone contributing them. So some people have asked us why we're not using ES6 shim in the first place, and I, I just felt that implementing these in ES6 with class syntax and similar was just a good thing to do, and it's always good to have more than one implementation. So right and yeah. So these polyfills are optional. You don't need to include them if you don't want them. You can change the make file to just include whatever you need.
1: So right now though, we've got this kind of like difficult spot that we're in as developers. If you want to do ES6, there's no single place to go and be able to just do all of ES6, right? So you end up in this position where you look and, well, what do I want? And then I can go for a product that supports that, you know, like maybe Tracer supports all the things that I want, so I'll just use Tracer. But then later on you might find things that it doesn't support, so then you gotta add in some polyfills or something else. When do you think we'll see a point where there's a single place you can go and add in one product into your development workflow and be able to author whatever you want as far as ES6 features? And how do you think that will happen?
3: Uh,
2: So I I think you can do that with Tracer. You will run into edge cases where polyfill is not complete or is missing. But yeah, I do feel that you can actually do that. It's just file bugs when you find a polyfill that's not complete or misbehaving. And polyfills are pretty easy to implement compared to the rest of the system. So yeah, to be fair, you're right that you cannot just put a drop-in replacement in your webpage and everything will just work out of the box. You need to cherry-pick a little bit to know what you're using. Right. Yeah. The only way to actually find out is to try or read the documentation.
1: Why is it that Tracer doesn't implement weak map and weak set just as sets and maps?
2: That's a good question. We actually had a pull request for map set, weak map, and weak sets. I felt that that pull request was way too large. You did all four of them at once. So I asked the, the author to split them into separate pull requests, and the weak map and weak set never came. So I guess we'll have to go back and do them. You cannot really get weak maps and weak set that's fully compliant with the spec because they add new garbage collection semantics. But you can easily create a weak map and weak set that fits certain scenarios. And uh, the scenario I'm thinking of is when you have something called a side table where you store some extra data on the side of an object, and that can easily be implemented as expander properties, and then you will get the right TC behavior too. And I see. And that that's what we should be doing and, and maybe I should just get that done. It's not that hard. Right. There are a bunch of weak map polyfills out there and some of them are, are more quick than others and some of them are super slow. For the Polymer project, we needed a weak map so we did the side table structure with the expanded properties on the actual keys uh, and we tuned that for performance because Polymer used a lot of weak maps initially. And so that we got that really fast. It's not fully spec compliant. Uh, but it does gets really fast and, and the
1: code is really small too. So are you saying that the weak map polyfill is actually compliant with the spec or close to? So there, there's the, the
2: main use case for weak maps is for so-called side tables or for private states where you, you use the object itself as the key and then you put the private state as a value in the map. So the only way to get to that is when you have access to the map itself. So you use the object as a key, and you have access to the map, then you can get the private data out. And then you can hide that map in a closure, and as long as no one else can get to it, they can't get to your data. And that scenario can be implemented without the, the private security, because it's usually done by, by adding expanded properties to the actual objects, and those will be visible to other people. But you will have the right behavior from a GC perspective, too. Oh,
1: well, that's interesting. I didn't realize that that could be done.
2: Yeah, so that one can be done as long as you don't have cycles and stuff like that because that's that's where weak map really shines. They can actually break your cycles between different keys and values and maps. That's why we actually need to add them into the language because the primitives are not there today. Right, yeah. But even with Tracer, we can actually... We can add an extra layer of security by rewriting the code. It of course, has some some performance issues, but we do this in some places. So we do rewrite, like... Object get on property names to not expose these private properties or so-called private properties. But you can still get to them if you use like a, a different frame or something to circumvent our weak protection. But it's doable. And when you have it, when right. you have, yeah, when you do it real, when you transform the whole code, you can add extra, extra security checks at runtime if you're willing to pay the price.
1: I got you. So another thing that I was interested in is. Development workflows, and this kind of relates to my other question where I was talking about like a single drop-in. So say, for example, you're a developer and you're a little bit interested in ES6. Right now, the easiest way by far to throw a few ES6 features into your property, into your project, is just to go out and grab like ES6 shim because all it is is one script tag that you add. If you don't have a build or if your project's really small, you don't have to worry about a build. And so it doesn't affect your workflow, it's just one little script tag that you add in and now you can play around with some ES6 features, but you're missing out on all the nice syntax. Yeah. So when it comes to actual development,